Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. A few months back, it's early in the morning, I'm making toast. And after years of buying the same packaged bread, not really thinking about it, I noticed that the biggest word on my bread's label has nothing to do with the reason I buy the stuff. All along, I've been buying it because it's got seeds in it and a bit of rye. But that bread's key selling point, at least if you judge from the bag, is that it's prebiotic. That word, prebiotic, is becoming almost inescapable lately. Along with terms like probiotic and active live bacterial cultures, they're all over grocery labels. And they're supposed to do something healthy for your insides. So producer Michelle Macklem and I went to my local indie supermarket called Fiesta Farms to see how many other everyday food products are somehow good for my guts. Hey, Michelle, you got your buggy. I got my buggy. You ready to ready go? Ready to go. I head first to the dairy case. It's what you'd call a target-rich environment. The word probiotic is everywhere. Mango, apricot, probiotic yogurt. There's a ton. No contest in here. Probiotic is a key selling point, and not just along that wall of yogurts. Right there in the dairy case, there's a whole row of kefir, the fermented milk drink, Every one of those kefir bottles is labeled probiotic. And in the case next to that, in the juice and bottled drinks case, I find a gut health gold mine. So I'm in like the juices aisle. And here, first thing I stop on, Vega One All-in-One Shake Probiotics. One billion bacillus coagulans per serving. Done. That juice case also holds this almost kaleidoscopic array of different kombuchas, the fermented tea that's filled with probiotic bacteria. And right beside all those, there's this milky-looking golden yellow beverage made from tiger nuts and ginger. It has the magic words right on its label. Prebiotics fuel a healthy gut. Even in the most unassuming, everyday part of the drinks case, the orange juice area, even in OJ, you cannot escape the gut health claims. Okay, and a regular orange juice oasis. Probiotics and fibers. Farther into the store, we find prebiotic ginger snaps and cocoa nibs. We find these packaged coconut cashew bars that are goosed with a patented probiotic strain called BC30. The word probiotic covers the entire package. They contain something like one billion active live bacteria per bite. And toward the back of the store, I come across that bread of mine that started it all. Dimpelmeyer Healthy Living. The biggest thing it says on the package is prebiotic. But the winner of that shopping trip's peak probiotics marketing prize is this smoked jalapeno sauerkraut that Michelle finds. Sauerkraut, along with other fermented foods like kimchi and miso paste, is naturally full of beneficial bacteria. 
It's been a probiotic food since way before probiotics were cool. The sauerkraut Michelle finds is made pretty much the same way sauerkraut's been made since time immemorial. Except the company that makes this brand of sauerkraut is a master at harnessing the power of gut health hype. Flip it over, it says superfood benefits, gut health, probiotics, energy, immune, pH balance, post-workout, and laxative. Laxative. I'm glad they spelled that out. From CBC, this is The Fridge Light, the hidden stories behind the food you eat. I'm Chris Noddle-Smith. When you actually go looking for gut-focused foods, the thing you realize is just how utterly pervasive they are. Because they're not only in the health food section. With the help of patented probiotic bacteria and prebiotic additives, ordinary, everyday groceries like juice and children's snacks are being transformed. They're in every aisle of many supermarkets. In probiotics-enhanced muffin and cupcake mixes, in probiotic ice cream, probiotic Bigelow tea, there's even probiotic beer and chips. But are all those supposedly helpful foods and ingredients doing anything to actually help us? And while we're at it, what is it with humans? What's with our gut obsession? It turns out we've got a really long history of being completely freaked out about our digestive tracts. In this episode, Gutsy, it's a moving look inside the food industry's $40 billion battle to remake our insides, whether it's actually good for us or not. So I'm Andrea, and we're at our facility, our production facility, where we make tiger nut milk. This is Andrea Arazi. Her company makes that ginger-flavored tiger nut milk I found in the grocery store's dairy case. This is the Chufa Co. headquarters. And Chufa is a Spanish word for tiger nut. I've come to see Andrea because I wanted to know where this wave of gut-focused groceries is coming from. I used to live in Barcelona probably 10 years ago. I was feeling under the weather one day and was out with Catalan friends. And somebody said, have an horchata de chufa. And, and I was like, but what is it? And they were like, it's horchata de chufa. You know, like Spanish people are like, it's horchata de chufa. What do you mean you don't know what it is? Horchata de chufa is sweetened tiger nut milk with a bit of cinnamon. They were like, yeah, you have horchata when you're not feeling well. After Barcelona, Andrea and her partner live in London for a bit. Life goes on. The whole time, she says, she's thinking about that horchata she got in Catalonia. And then they move back to Canada. I had seen horchata around Toronto, but it was never the Spanish kind. It was always rice. And it was always really disappointing when I had it. I was like, oh, this, this is just not it. And I thought, why can't we just start this company? You know, like all these other people start these companies. Why don't we just start an horchata company? She imports a bunch of tiger nuts. By the way, they're not actually nuts. They're a tuber. They look a little like shriveled up golden raisins. Anyway, she imports a bunch of these non-nut nuts, learns to soak them in water to soften them, and then to blend them in a Vitamix and strain what's left. It's the same process people use to make almond milk. She flavors the tiger nut milk with cinnamon or turmeric and ginger, even cocoa for a chocolate version. It's tasty stuff. And what Andrea realized, she realized this belatedly, she says, is that tiger nuts have prebiotic properties. 
I had no idea, basically. I had no idea. And then we were looking into it. It was like, wow, we can use this as also a selling point. Like, it's not only good, it's good for you. This is probably an ideal place to take a step back for a quick gut health primer, courtesy of Mary Claire Arietta. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Calgary, and I study the what we call the gut microbiome. First things first, the gut. The gut is a tube, and it's a tube that starts in your mouth. And it ends, well, you know where it ends. Another big gut world term, the microbiome. The microbiome is a community of microbes that lives in and on us. And what about probiotic? A probiotic is a type or a group of microbes that are thought to have beneficial effects in the health of either humans or it could be animals too. Probiotics in some circumstances can help to sort of tune your microbiome. And prebiotics. A prebiotic is the food for probiotics. So prebiotics are probiotic-friendly fuel. They come mostly from fibrous foods like Jerusalem artichokes and chicory root, even raw dandelion and tiger nuts. Last thing, and this one's the clincher, the thing that's driving a lot of that grocery store gut health craze. Gut bacteria, your microbiome, they do matter a lot in ways that scientists are only just discovering. Probiotics can help fight gut diseases like irritable bowel syndrome and ulcerative colitis. They can help treat childhood eczema and help diabetics control their blood sugar. And one really important recent study in India found that the combination of this key probiotic bacterium and a prebiotic dramatically reduced the incidence of childhood sepsis, a widespread deadly blood disease. Those kids that received this treatment uh, had a much lower risk of developing neonatal sepsis. And then they did the analysis after where they calculated how much it would cost to save a life. And it was about 30 U.S. dollars. The microbes in our guts are even responsible for producing serotonin, the chemical neurotransmitter that helps regulate our mood, our sleep, our appetite and memory, and even our sex drives. And of course, the bacteria and fiber in our guts also help to perform slightly more workaday chores. They help to digest stuff, which gets us back to Andrea. When Andrea had her second child a few years ago and was breastfeeding, she had to go off dairy. And so she switched to tiger nut milk. I used it in everything. I used it in my coffee, in my cereal, in everything. And I did personally notice like a difference in bloating and just feeling like lighter and better. As she tells me this, Andrea keeps doing this weird thing with her hands. She's got her hands in front of her stomach with her palms facing inward. And she keeps sweeping them downward toward the floor like she's trying to brush away a bunch of crumbs from her lap. In the gut health business, you see people doing that a lot. You just did that thing with your hands. You just like swept your hands over your gut and down. What is that movement? What does that mean? So it means that I felt like after being pregnant for so long and it just actually helps you with the hopes of not sounding too crude, but just like flush your system. Like it really helps with any kind of constipation you have. There it is. Next time somebody says this thing they eat or drink helps regulate their digestive system or improves their gut health or, I love this one, makes them feel good on the inside, 
What they actually mean is it helps them go. Or at least that's what Andrea's company's betting. The Chufaco's Tiger Nut Milk costs $7 a bottle for one cup's worth, 250 milliliters. And because it's a totally natural product, no preservatives, its shelf life is only a week. In spite of all that, the company's growing. When I visit Andrea, they're just about to launch this line of dairy-free, prebiotic, tiger nut ice cream. And if history's any guide, North Americans will eat it up. There's been a perpetual obsession with constipation as a source of a range of diseases. An early 20th century writer actually referred to it as the mother of all diseases. This is James Wharton, a professor emeritus of medical history at the University of Washington. He's the author of a book called Inner Hygiene. Oh, Inner Hygiene, Constipation and the Pursuit of Health in Modern Society. What got me into it was when I was starting out teaching medical history, I became very interested in the history of health fadism. And pursuing that interest, I read a lot of health literature from the 18th and 19th century Hmm. and was struck by how often, beginning in the late 1700s, medical writers and health promoters warned about the dangers of constipation. It had never occurred to me that people would have seen it as anything more than a temporary inconvenience. But I discovered that sooner or later, just about every illness in the medical dictionary was attributed to constipation. When humans can't go, we pretty typically fear the worst. James says that even the ancient Egyptians, all the way back to 1600 BCE, well, they were seriously panicked about being all bound up. There's the empirical response. You feel like crap when you're constipated. But there's an intuitive insight that's much more powerful, which is that stuff is retained in the body too long. It can cause all manner of diseases. So that was an idea that had been around for quite some time before the late 18th century. In the late 18th century, urbanization made the problem worse. People who moved into cities didn't eat the same as they'd eaten in the country. Cheap sugar and refined grains were becoming common, and urban dwellers didn't exercise as much. So their warnings start to appear that not only is constipation dangerous, but it's becoming much more common. There are predictions of dire epidemics of constipation that are bound to result from urbanization. So whatever anxiety had existed for centuries now was magnified. In England, people were so obsessed that this novel called Memoirs of a Stomach, written from the perspective of a human digestive system, became a major bestseller. And well into the 1900s, not just in Europe, but also here in North America, cookbooks published detailed digestion tables. These handy charts that recorded, down to the minute, how long it took different foods to pass. Just in case you're wondering what to eat tonight, In one chart I found from 1913, the fastest transiting food of all was boiled tripe. According to that chart, it pretty much shoots through people, in and out, in exactly an hour. But the discovery of germs near the end of the 1800s turned an obsession with digestion into full-out paranoia. People assumed that if germs were bad, 
then keeping them in our bodies for even a minute more than absolutely necessary could only bring on horrible things. It's important to point out that theory was total bunk. But anyway, its name was auto-intoxication. There was hysteria over the dangers of auto-intoxication from the 1890s up till about 1920, a period of about 30 years. On the plus side, that period of gut health hysteria gave rise to foods that are still considered staples even today. The first of those came from this firebrand Connecticut health promoter named Sylvester Graham. Sylvester Graham invented something he called Graham flour, which was a very coarse ground whole wheat flour that he also used to make graham crackers. So that's where they come from. I think of graham crackers and I think of this kind of heavily processed, honeyed, packaged product. Sylvester Graham is spinning in his grave over what happened to uh, his graham crackers. The present day product is nothing like what he created. It was essentially a slice of graham bread, bread made with graham flour toasted until it was very hard. There was no sugar, and you couldn't dip it into milk, as is a popular practice today, because Graham was the chief proponent of vegetarianism. So Graham crackers, and not the Graham crackers we use today to make s'mores, but these super dry, austere, eat your medicine Graham crackers, they become immensely popular. And in Michigan, this other gut obsessive named John Harvey Kellogg takes notice. Kellogg starts breaking up those graham crackers and feeding them to the patients at a sort of masochistic Victorian-era health spa he runs. Those graham crackers are so dry, so hard, that a patient of Kellogg's actually chips a tooth just trying to eat one. And so Kellogg starts covering them with milk and calling it granola. And soon, Kellogg's cornflakes, Kellogg's bran flakes, the whole packaged Kellogg cereal empire, are born. Kellogg's cereal developed competition, too. A fellow gut obsessive who'd been a patient at Kellogg's sanitarium, this guy named C.W. Post, also got into the cereal business. Grape nut cereals, it's goodness. We can thank him for post-grape nuts and post-all-bran, and a little more recently for post-cocoa pebbles and post-alphabets. Coco-licious. Fact is, Bon, only pebbles let you spread 64 chocolatey pieces over your whole tongue. The other gut-friendly food that caught on in that era is one we know all too well, even today. In the early 1900s, this Russian physiologist named Ilya Mechnikov became convinced that the best way to fight auto-intoxication was to fill people's guts with beneficial microbes. And the best place to find those microbes... That was yogurt. He started arguing for yogurt as a health food, and an industry took off from that. People in the early 1900s even popped yogurt pills, proto-probiotics, though nobody then called them that. Yogurt's North American fortunes were looking great until Mechnikov made this one really key marketing error. He didn't argue that yogurt was merely good for people. He was convinced that yogurt was a fountain of youth, that if you ate enough of it, you'd live longer, a lot longer. 
As his theories caught on, he made a show of eating yogurt every day. He was meticulous about it. And then Ilya Machnikov, Mr. Longer Living Through Yogurt Eating, died of heart failure, aged 71. This was not a good look for a man in his line of work. Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. All the same, some yogurt-like foods did catch on. In the 1930s in Japan, a pioneering scientist named Minoru Shirota, a guy who, not coincidentally, had read a lot of Ilya Machnikov, launched a probiotic dairy beverage. Its name was Yakult. That word was actually based on the Esperanto for yogurt. The drink took off across Asia and South America, and even 80 years later, it's still popular there. But here in North America, yogurt's breakthrough would have to wait. The yogurt of France is called Yoplait. Some Americans don't know about it yet. Yoplait yogurt. Get a little taste of French culture. Yogurt is a very traditional food around the world, but it wasn't necessarily a traditional food for Americans. This is Kara Nielsen. I'm the vice president of trends and marketing at CCD Innovation. I'm a longtime trend tracker. In the 1970s and 80s, yogurt started to find its way into North Americans' everyday diets. But the reason wasn't gut health. Not yet. Yogurt manufacturer's message was pretty much the same as in Ilya Mechnikov's time. There were advertisements on TV about people living to over 100 from... Uh, different parts of Russia and different parts of Europe, mountain-dwelling people who lived over a 100. Yogurt made you as strong and as vital as a mountain-dwelling person. But in 1987, Danone launched this new functional yogurt in Europe. It became known as Activia, and Activia was different. Activia had been in France since the 1980s and had a very specific type of bacteria. It had both a sort of European mystique, but also somewhat medicinal look about it. You know, even the name itself, Activia, seems somewhat medicinal. In 2004, Activia was introduced in Canada. And in 2006, it became available across the U.S. And enter Jamie Lee Curtis. First, the bad news. Our busy lives sometimes force us to eat the wrong things at the wrong time. Activia can help. In wall-to-wall advertising, Activia's health promise shifted from it may help you lose weight to, well, you sort of had to read between the lines. Danone named Activia's proprietary bacterium BF regularis, and its commercials claimed it could regulate your digestive system. It made over $100 million within the first several years after and during this advertising campaign. By 2014, people in Europe and North America spent more than $2.7 billion on the stuff annually, even if the company's health claim was a little less solid than it could have been. 
You had to eat three servings of Activia daily for any sort of proven effect. Danone even lost a lawsuit over its claims. But details. Thanks to Activia's market success, food manufacturers made the connection between digestive health claims, no matter how spurious, and booming sales. By 2012, we're really recognizing that this probiotic word and the understanding of gut health was very much mainstream. Kara says the rise of probiotics fit a pattern that's common in foods that become popular. When certain trends become totally mainstream, some of the meaning that was attached to them early on dissolves, falls away. People have heard about it so much, they maybe even forgot what they first heard when they learned about a new food or ingredient or health claim. But it still lingers and it becomes part of our vernacular and just something that we generally think of as good for you. In the case of probiotics, a lot of people have started to see them as all being pretty much the same. And whether the consumer cares, your average consumer may not care, they may just think, hey, that's good for me, I'm going to eat that. And I think we're almost at that stage. All that said, if you're a food manufacturer or probiotics company trying to get ahead, there is a way to differentiate yourself. The way to stand out will be to have a special strain with a, a name and a patent and something that's quite proprietary. A proprietary strain like Ganadin BC30. We thought there was a huge opportunity for consumers who didn't want to consume multiple cups of yogurt a day or take supplements every day. And I think we were right. This is Mike Bush, the president of Ganadin, a probiotic supplier based in Cleveland. Ganadin's been a big part of the reason probiotics have expanded from the dairy case, from yogurt, into everything. The company's main product is a bacterium called Ganadin BC30, And its key claim to fame is that unlike the probiotics you find in kimchi and sauerkraut or even in yogurt, BC30 is shelf-stable. Because it's a spore-forming organism, it can go into all kinds of things, has exceptional shelf life, allows for years of stability because the spores themselves are dormant. You can bake BC30, you can boil it, you can freeze it, or you can just forget it in a warehouse for a while. And according to Ganadin, it'll still work. And so it opened up a new category of spaces in the probiotic world. So you can put BC30 in almost anything. And Ganadin's food manufacturer clients pretty much do. It's in Kavita, the probiotic kefir water company that PepsiCo owns. It's in Bigelow Tea and Purely Elizabeth Granola. And that smoked jalapeno sauerkraut that Michelle found back in Fiesta Farms The same company that makes that stuff also makes these sauerkraut snacking chips, which sounds really healthy, probably, because sauerkraut is a natural probiotic. But turning sauerkraut into a chip by baking it actually kills the sauerkraut's natural probiotic bacteria. So the company makes those sauerkraut chips probiotic again by spiking them with BC30. We started launching products in 2008, and every two years since then, we've doubled in size, and obviously we're much larger now. We've got about 800 different products on the market in about 60 countries. One of Mike's successes, his company's successes, is they are masters at identifying new product possibilities, entire categories where no probiotics have gone before. One of the areas that's surprisingly or maybe not surprisingly growing the fastest in this space is companion animal. That's right. Pet food. 
the prevailing wisdom in the companion animal space right now is if it's good for me, it's got to be good for my pet. You can even buy pre- and probiotic-enhanced budgie food. Because budgies, well, as everybody knows, budgies just don't poop enough. The problem with probiotics, with the whole probiotics are good for you hype machine, is there are loads of different probiotic bacteria strains, more than science even knows about. And they can do really different things. But food labels mostly still market probiotics as all the same. Remember Mary Claire Arietta, the microbiome researcher from the University of Calgary? I consider myself someone that knows quite a bit about gut microbes. Present her with a wall of different probiotic brands, and even she doesn't know what to choose. If I were to show up to either a health store or a pharmacy and I saw the amount of products that are there, it would be really hard even for, for someone like me to determine which product will be good for what. Not all of them have the same effects. And they will have a, an effect for one particular disease and one for another. The probiotics industry isn't regulated like pharmaceuticals. Probiotics companies just have to show that their products won't hurt us. And what they don't have to prove is that their patented and trademarked bacterial strains actually do anything for people's health, which is convenient, it turns out, because a lot of the foods that are sold as probiotics don't do anything at all. In one study, researchers bought a bunch of supposedly probiotic yogurt brands and then took them into the lab, and they could hardly find any active bacteria. They use probiotic organisms to make the yogurt, but we've tried growing them in the lab and there's just no bacteria or at least no, no live bacteria by the time you eat it. And even yogurt, though, I'm surprised about that because yogurt yeah. is kind of the poster food for probiotics yeah. and for the probiotic trends. You don't sound convinced that no, when you eat yogurt. yogurt, you're getting probiotics. No, I'm completely unconvinced that that's the case. They, there may be some products. We test a few. We just didn't find any. But no, that, that, that's not the case. And then even if a food does contain probiotic bacteria and if those bacteria have beneficial properties, a lot of them die on the journey from your mouth to your intestines where they can do any good. A lot of bacteria just aren't great at surviving the trip into the human gut. One other important observation that might make you look at your probiotic-filled fridge and pantry a little differently. If you want to change your microbiome for the long term, eating a few probiotic ginger snaps or drinking a glass of probiotic OJ isn't going to do that. Your microbiome is a seriously stubborn ecosystem. Mary Claire likens our guts to a hotel that's completely booked. We have a completely packed, jammed gut full of microbes. There is not much more room. Probiotics are other microbes that you would take. It will be for them to try to book a room in a completely packed, jammed hotel. There's no room for them. They're passerbys. They, they, they don't stay there. So they just kind of walk into the lobby. They, you know, may have a quick drink at most, and then they leave and they never even stay. No, and that's the number one reason why you have to take probiotics every day. You have to constantly expose your gut to them um, because you're going to, you know, poop them out. 
The answer to all this, at least for Mary Claire, is to try and stick with old-school fermented foods like sauerkraut or kimchi or kefir, stuff that's proven to be naturally full of good bugs. And as for yogurt, there is at least one great reason to eat it, a reason that's beyond any scientific doubt. That reason is how incredibly tasty good yogurt can be. I'm Lindsay Michael. I live in Toronto, and we're going to make my grandmother's yogurt. Lindsay sits right across from where the Fridge Lights producers sit at the CBC. She overheard us going on and on about yogurt. And she mentioned she has a yogurt tradition that has nothing to do with those Jamie Lee Curtis ads. My grandmother on my dad's side is from Syria, and my grandfather is from Lebanon. And so they have this yogurt that we eat that goes, like, with all of the food. And when I was growing up, she would every week make a fresh container of it, and it's, like, a little bit sour and really delicious. And the family lore is that it's the culture that came over from Syria with, like, my great-grandmother when she came over. So you have a culture somewhere that you're about to show me? Yeah, so like I just make it every week. And so the culture is like last week's yogurt. So I just make sure I don't eat it all. So I save enough to make a batch. Lindsay's process has maybe modernized a little since her grandparents' days. So most people in my family have now migrated over to the microwave. She takes out a little microwavable container, pulls a liter of 2% milk out of the fridge. Now I'm going to open the milk and pour it in the thing. She enters 12 minutes on the keypad to boil a liter of milk. Her microwave is pretty old. And then we wait. So it's starting to get a little frothy. It really isn't. Get in the zone where something could happen. We're just like waiting. Nothing happens. Uh, It's very exciting. Is this the highest tension drama you've had on the show so far? I can hear the music in the background, and it's scary. It's like storm cloud music. Like, it's tense, because I'm just sitting here watching, waiting, like anything could happen. There's only, we're counting down from 128, 27, 26, 25. Oh, oh, it's boiling! Yep, done. It happened so fast. See how frothy it is? I feel like we just diffused a bomb right before it went off. So I just have to, like, wait a few minutes till it cools down. Lindsay has this high-tech method for making sure the temperature of the milk is right. She sticks in a finger. Okay, so we're checking the pinky. Sticking it in. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Whoa! That. Ten. Counted to ten. You did not count to ten. You counted to like one and a half. And I realized, but that's what I've been doing and it works. She adds some of that last yogurt batch, her original bacterial culture, to the milk. We go get the old yogurt and I put in one big tablespoon. Now I cover it before we lose more heat. So now I'm wrapping it in this towel. It's like literally just a bath towel. It looks like you have like a small child wrapped up in your arms. I have a small child, which is my yogurt, wrapped up in my arms. And now I'm going to open the microwave it just came from and put it back in. Tomorrow, when I get home from work, I'm going to have a brand new batch of yogurt. Can I try the yogurt? Let me get you a little bowl of yogurt. Lindsay's family's Syrian yogurt looks a lot like yogurt. I didn't actually wait 24 hours and come back, but it's radio, so, you know, work with me here. Oh, that's delicious. 
Yeah, you went to it? Oh, it's got a lot going on. It's not like regular yogurt. Like, yeah. it's got the sour and the milkiness, but there's a weird, like, beautiful sweetness lying underneath it all. It is incredible yogurt. Rich and sour and super complex. It's also dead easy. You open milk, pour it in a container, microwave it, take it out, let it cool, put in the old yogurt, put it back in the microwave, wait 24 hours. I can't help myself. As we're finishing up, I ask Lindsay if her yogurt, this almost magical food stuff her family's been eating for generations, does anything for her health. Probiotic, yeah. It's one of those sort of vague things where you're like, oh, this is good for me, so I'm going to, like eating salad. So you do it vaguely thinking it's helping you. Or at least it doesn't kill you. <laughs> this is The Fridge Light. The voices you heard today were Andrea Orazzi of the Chufaco, James Wharton, Professor Emeritus at University of Washington School of Medicine, Karen Nielsen, Vice President of Trends and Marketing at CCD Innovation. Mary Claire Arietta, Assistant Professor in the Department of Physiology and Pharmacology at the University of Calgary. Mike Bush, the President of Ganadin. And the noted yogurt chef and host of CBC's podcast playlist, Lindsay Michael, who I should note here, we're probably going to start a Kickstarter for so she can get herself a new microwave. And if you're a little like Mary Claire and looking at that wall of probiotics leaves you totally flummoxed, a lot of the researchers we spoke with pointed to a pretty handy reference guide that they say is even credible. In Canada, it's probioticchart.ca, and in the U.S., it's usprobioticguide.com. This episode was produced by Michelle Macklem, Zoe Tennant, Veronica Simmons, Alison Broverman, and me, Chris Noddle-Smith. We had help from Cassandra Basler and Natalie Jones. Special thanks to Fiesta Farms for letting us raid their store and their shelves. Additional theme music is by Paolo Pietropaolo. Our executive producer is Arif Narani. And if you have feelings about this episode, gut feelings, write us a review on Apple Podcasts. For more information on this episode, visit cbc.ca slash thefridgelight. And you can connect with us on Twitter and share photos with us on Instagram, FridgelightCBC. For more CBC Original Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash originalpodcasts.